Hello, and welcome back to Jamilcast. December 1st is World AIDS Day, and in this episode of Jamilcast, we'll be speaking with a researcher whose work has supported the global fight against HIV over the last 20 years. Professor Tim Hallett is a lead investigator at the Jamil Institute, and we'll be hearing about the outcomes of his work to date, the collaborations he's worked on, and the realisations he came to along the way that have helped shape the work that he does now. Their questions were, what do we do and not do? How do we fund it? Do we need more nurses? And so it just made me realise, oh my goodness, there's some really bigger questions out there. And actually, by sitting inside one field, I hadn't noticed it before. More about that on this episode of Jamilcast. Every year, the polling company Gallup asks the American population what they consider to be the most urgent health problem facing the US. You get a huge range of answers to that question. Some of the most quoted is access to treatment and cost of medicines, closely followed by other answers like cancer, drug abuse or obesity. But one answer in particular no longer comes up. AIDS. A startling result given that when the same question was asked in 1987, over two-thirds of Americans said that AIDS was their greatest public health concern. The 1990s were a tense time for epidemiologists, waiting with bated breath as pharmaceutical companies gradually developed the testing kits and medicines needed, all while the global burden of AIDS slowly grew. By 1999, AIDS was the fourth biggest cause of death in the world, and the number one cause of death in Africa. But, come the turn of the century, more effective and affordable drugs were being produced, big funding bots were being amassed, they just needed to know what to do with it all. That's where Tim's work first began. So I started my PhD in 2003, and this was actually quite a pivotal time in the story of the AIDS pandemic, because it was only just after PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief in the US, and the Global Fund to fight HTB and malaria had been started. That was money basically entering the field in large amounts from many high-income countries. And that, that led to scale-up of treatment to more and more people, particularly in Africa. It also meant there was lots more research and a pipeline of developments was about to start producing the goods. And you know, even during my PhDs a few years later, the first trial was released showing that male circumcision was found to one trial and then two others significantly reduce a man's risk of acquiring HIV. And not by a little bit, but by, you know, 50% or even more, huge impact. And that changed the calculus. So during the time of my PhD, from day one to the day I was admitted, the world kind of changed from, oh, there's inequality, we don't know what to do, to things are moving forward need to accelerate. And it's no longer quite so much that we don't know what to do, we just need to know how to do it and to do it more and more and more. Now, when Tim says the calculus changed, that's not just a turn of phrase. It quite literally caused the mathematical calculus to shift. After Tim had finished his PhD, drugs were shown to not just effectively treat HIV, but to stop people from transmitting the disease on to other people. This had a huge impact on projections for how the disease was going to spread. You can go back and listen to our episode with Anne Corrie to understand more about this process. All of a sudden, with so many new tools and treatments in the tool belt, 
there was a lot more discussion amongst the scientific community about which was the best strategy to adopt and what the outcomes would be. Everyone's calculus had changed. But with huge amounts of money ready to be spent, a clear message about what to do was needed. So it was known then that people who were receiving treatment or on treatment successfully were less infectious, less likely to transmit to other people. And there were even clinical trials sort of quantifying this. But of course, there's a big gap between an effect you see at an individual level and in a trial and over a short term to what the long term and population level effect would be. So models are quite good at doing that kind of, in a way, a thought experiment that, oh, if we take this little result and combine it with other assumptions about what would happen, what's the population level impact? So, of course, every modeler in the world picked up this problem and that led to 20 or more different opinions. Because you could make assumptions which said, oh, I think what I've seen in this trial is going to be durable, everyone's going to have the same effect, and there's nothing else more to consider. This is enough to end the epidemic. And some people were saying that. Other people were saying, okay, but I'm worried about resistance, I'm worried about adherence, I'm worried about frequency of testing and how we're going to find people and whether they're going to stay in care and they would have a much more pessimistic projection. Oh, this is going to cost loads, maybe not do very much. You know, If we were to scale up treatment and think the HIV epidemic would go away, maybe it wouldn't. And there were lots of people in between. And I saw this debate, and I was one of these people with the model, but I, I also saw that this debate wasn't actually helping because there were genuinely people with big decisions to make. And am I going to pull money out of what I'm doing right now in my programs and put it somewhere else? Am I going to pull money out of my programs overall in PEPFAR and sink it into research at a huge scale to test this once and for all? Should the WHO's guidelines move? 20 different opinions say opposite things, but for opaque reasons, wasn't getting in on anywhere. And that's what led to the HIV modeling consortium. The idea was, let's lock ourselves in a room with plenty of Red Bull and not let ourselves out of the room until we can say something that's actually going to be useful. That doesn't mean groupthink. It doesn't mean I'm going to just make people agree with me about something. We're all on the same page. We all want to know the truth. We're all got access to the same data, more or less. But somehow or other, we're coming to different conclusions. Let's work out what we can say as a field rather than as competing research groups. And we did that. And the first time we did it was in 2011. And we did what's called a model comparison, where we said, okay, you modelers, we're going to give you a standard question. Give us Excel workbooks with your projections in it. And then we're going to just work out what the differences are. And actually, the first, <laughs> first result of that was that projections weren't so very different after all. Once you've standardized the question and the time frame and the country you're looking at and some of the basics, actually there's much more agreement than we thought, which was kind of a huge deal because then we could go, oh, yeah, there's lots of support for this overall idea that a massive scale-up of treatment is going to have an effect on incidence. It doesn't sound like very much, but it was a step forward. And then it led to more and more nuanced questions. So the very next year, the WHO said, okay, it's time for us to assess our guidelines. Are we going to actually make this change and you know, let treatment be started earlier? And so we locked ourselves in a room for even longer and did the same thing. But for more countries over more questions, we wrote it up. It became evidence. I think it was the first time, or one of the first times at least, that modeling and health economics evidence had actually entered seriously into the WHO guidelines development process, You know, alongside much other evidence, clinical evidence and so on. But one of the pieces of data 
that was contributing to this story was the, the modeling and health economics piece that we'd done. It was, you know, a contribution to that body of evidence that was being assembled there. The progress since then has been mind-blowing. Numbers of new HIV infections have reduced by 59% from where they were in 1995. Roughly 86% of those with HIV know they have it, and of those, 90% are accessing treatment. And as we mentioned in the start of the episode, in just 35 years, we've seen AIDS drop from being considered the most urgent health concern for 68% of all Americans to zero. That success is, of course, to be applauded. But we must be cautious to not lose sight of the work still to go. In 2011, The Economist magazine ran a story titled The End of AIDS. And yet here we are in 2023 with still over a million new cases every year. I was curious to hear Tim's first-hand reflection on the state of the global AIDS burden between now and then, and its representation within the media. An AIDS diagnosis 20 years ago, if you were in UK, would have meant you'd have got treatment, but it would have been probably in the form of several different pills, and you would have been you know, closely monitored, and people would be worried about resistance spreading and so on. But if you were diagnosed with AIDS 20 years ago when you were living, for instance, in somewhere like Malawi, well, it might have been very different. It might have been that you wouldn't have been tested, so you wouldn't have known. And if you were being diagnosed, it would probably be because you've been infected for a long time and were now very seriously ill. There might not be access to treatment, and therefore you might be developing AIDS and dying. So very, very different. It has changed. With the advent of treatments that really are very efficacious and more tolerated and increasingly widely available and accessible and so on, it isn't the same as it was. That was a scary time when, you know, things were getting worse and worse and worse and there wasn't any very good treatment. You know, that has changed. It's still a major issue. It still needs lots of attention. It still absolutely demands focus because we can do even more and we can think about ending the epidemic and, and so on. I also think that the people who determine macro-level international policy about AIDS have a complicated balancing act because on the one hand, they say we can end the pandemic, we have the tools to end the pandemic. But on the other hand, they say, but we haven't ended it yet. It demands your attention, you know, and it, and it will demand your attention for decades to come. And, you know, and they have to balance these two messages. Whereas if they get it a little bit wrong, it can sound like, problem sorted. Move on. That isn't the message I think they want to send. Well, I know it's the message they want to send. It isn't the message I would agree with. But you can sort of see how people could misconstrue it. There's lots more work to be done. And what does the end of AIDS really mean? It means something different to different people. This period we've just looked back on, the time of accelerated funding, of intervention modelling and clinical research, meant that resources and treatments could be directed into the countries where it was needed most. Much of Tim's work up to that point involved well-defined modelling questions, like how much treatment is needed to achieve X percent control? How many new cases can we anticipate after a certain intervention? And when a considerable research question is answered, you go to conferences and global seminars to help share your results further. It was at these events that Tim was meeting and interacting with health workers and policymakers in the heart of the places he had spent the last 15 years researching. And it was these conversations that began to shape the direction his research faces today. My PhD was in HIV, my research fellowship was in HIV, and I was going to HIV conferences, and I was used to publishing in a journal called AIDS. 
And it led me to go to lots of different countries and talk to people in the Ministry of Health about the sort of work we were doing. And what I noticed was that their questions were fundamentally much broader. <laughs> because whilst I was talking about you know, a particular intervention, a HIV, a particular population, they were the ones who sort of were responsible for healthcare service delivery overall and had big questions about, well, what do we do and not do? How do we fund it? Do we need more nurses? I'm saying I've got this intervention, you know, if you did this small change, they're thinking, but if I do that, what can't I do? And can I afford it? And so it just made me realize, oh my goodness, there's some really bigger questions out there. And actually, by sitting inside one field for one disease, I hadn't noticed it before. And that's what led to us doing the, what we call it, the Fanzi Onze healthcare system model. Fanzi Onze, meaning health of all, is a large collaborative project that looks beyond these smaller defined research questions to instead look at solving the real boots on the ground issues that healthcare systems in Malawi, Uganda, and other areas of Southern and East Africa are facing. By bringing together experts in economics, politics and governance, Ministry of Health leads, epidemiologists and modelers like Tim, Fancy Laonze can ensure the maximum amount is achieved from support that had been put forward. In a sense, they answer the question, we've got only so many resources, where do we need them to go? It's really about an equitable partnership, first of all, to answer questions about health in support of people in the Ministry of Health who have the invidious task of working out how to make the resources that they have, which are small, go as far as they possibly can do. And it's motivated by the observation that when resources are limited, the cost of a mistake in terms of the health foregone is much greater. Resources is many things. It's the time of your healthcare workers. It's the medicines that you've got in your supply chain that you can deliver at any particular point. It's also the money that you have to do things with, build new buildings with, train more people with for the future, all these things. You can imagine there's like millions of, of small and larger uh, decisions about how to do those resources. So we sat around and thought about all the questions that need to be answered and looked at the existing methods that there are to answer them. Health technology assessment, health economics, cost effectiveness analysis, looking at databases of ICES and so on. And then we decided that what the long-term solution is going to have to be is not really just using those tools more and more, but something bigger. And that's what led us to do the sort of the centerpiece of that of the fancy collaboration is called the TLO model. That's this all disease, whole healthcare system model. At the link in the show notes, you can see more about the breadth of Thanzi Lonzi's research and impact. One thing to make clear, though, is how the agenda of Thanzi is shaped. The mission statement of the project is informed entirely by those who understand the problem better than anyone, the health ministries of these countries themselves. One of the core tenets, I think, of the Thanzi Lonzi collaboration, the way in which we work, is we really try to be led by questions that are coming directly from the Ministry of Health. In fact, it's easy to do that in a way because they are writing their strategy, you know, about what they want to do for the next five years in a document, which is full of real questions. Oh, you know, this is our political priority. It leads to this question. Like, we want to offer a benefits package. It leads to the question of what's in it. And so we try to take these kind of documents and these policy questions as our cue. We don't just download the PDF in London, read it, 
do some work, email it back to the Ministry of Health in Malawi. No, it tries to be a real collaboration. So our partners in Malawi at uh, Kamuzu, University of Health Sciences, they run a thing jointly with the Ministry of Health, Department of Planning, called the Think Tank. And this is where the policymakers and the scientists at Camus and occasionally we would go as well from Imperial UCL in New York, where we are in one forum around one table. We've got this question in the Ministry of Health. We've got this research being done about health system priorities. Let's put them together and see what can be done. And through this, you know, repeated engagements over years and years and years of these sort of regular think tanks and extraordinary think tanks, shared understanding and trust is being built. And I think that's core to how Fancy tries to work. This transformation in the sort of work being done on HIV, on the sort of questions that need answering, simply shows the huge progress that has been made. Tim's work in this field has seen him move from those difficult early questions about what results could be expected from those early interventions, specialised mathematical work, to now these broader, highly data-driven questions of health system strengthening. With all he's learned in that time, I had to ask him if he had any idea of what we might expect to happen next. You're asking about um, what's going to happen in the next 20 years. And it's a really hard question to answer, of course. I don't think I necessarily would have predicted 20 years ago what would have happened now, even though looking back, it all, it all feels very predictable. I think there will be increasingly routinely collected data in healthcare systems around the world. And yes, that will lead to personalized medicines and, you know, bespoke care at the individual level. But maybe it will also lead to much better planning. I think that will improve. I hope it will improve. And I think a model like we're developing is very useful for saying, look, there is this trade-off. You can't see it, but it's there and you need to make decisions about it. But that's not as powerful as data showing it. And so a little bit like in epidemiology in AIDS, models were most useful when the data was sparsest, showing, you know, here's what you might be missing. I wonder if we're on the same trajectory in the sort of healthcare system stuff. We haven't got a lot of data, we're having to rely on modeling, but that will lead there to be a greater leveraging of routinely available data. And who knows? You know, maybe the way in which people interact with models and analytics won't be through talking to someone like me. It'll be through a large language model. Who, who knows? I, but I think the fundamental issue is that maybe in 20 years, we won't be thinking about models so much as analyzing really high quality data and getting answers that way. I do like visiting, meeting the collaborators and also seeing natural facilities. I was there just a couple of months ago for one of the extraordinary think tanks with our collaborators. And I tell you, one thing we did after that meeting was visit some of the health facilities, went to a hospital. And one of the questions I asked was, what fraction of your inpatient beds are occupied as of now or last night by AIDS patients? I was thinking back to the kind of answer I got to that question when I started this work 15 so years ago, when the answer would have been half of them or, or more than half of the inpatient beds would have been age patients and anyway the answer came back zero and i thought gosh that's absolutely incredible on, on so many levels and I, I asked the doctor why it was oh it's because treatment um, is widely available we're able to test people early it just brought home to me again how much the world has changed in this last 15 years 
the world has ambitious targets for HIV reduction, and there's a long way still to go. Last year, the United Nations Programme on HIV-AIDS unveiled a new strategy to redouble efforts in combating HIV. Thank you again for listening to Jamilcast with me, Tom Rawson, and our guest, Tim Hallett. <laughs>